going to be looking at a passage in Acts chapter 26 where Paul is totally unashamed of lifting up the name of God before kings and governors and others in authority in a courtroom. He's just very, very bold on that. And he leaves the results in God's hands. Now, this last week when we went out uh, doing evangelism, there were only two people who were willing to talk with us at least at any great length. We got a number of people willing to receive tracts and some people just not interested at all. Now, we trust God, you know, to prepare the way and who He's going to meet. We just need to get out there and lift up the name of God on high. And that's what the Apostle Paul was doing here. Acts 26, beginning at verse 24. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that you, not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is our desire as we continue to worship to respond appropriately and to have our lives uh, sanctified and touched by your spirit through your word. I pray that you would anoint my lips and that you would enable the feebleness of preaching to affect the power of your sanctifying work in each one of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Just last week in Macharke village, which is um, in, a, in the region of Punjab up in Pakistan, there was a, a Christian who got off a bus because he wanted to get something to drink, and he went to a roadside tea, uh, a tea stand. Unfortunately, he did not read the sign there that said, all Muslims should introduce their faith, all non-Muslims should introduce their faith prior to ordering tea. This tea stall serves Muslims only. Uh, it wasn't a very big sign, but he didn't uh, notice it. Anyway, he ordered his tea, he drank it, and he went up to pay for his tea. And the owner of the store noticed a necklace with a cross that was on it. And he grabbed the Christian without asking any questions. He ordered his employees to start beating him, and they beat this guy to death with iron rods and wooden clubs and stones and stabbed him numerous times. Now, most civilized people, they would just go back and they would be horrified with the barbarity of this hatred against Christianity. They would say, well, at least these guys are totally depraved. But many Christians have a hard time believing that everyone is totally depraved. Could that really be true? Because there's some really nice people out there uh, in the world. 
But you see, total depravity manifests itself in many different ways, including very nice, polite, amiable responses to the gospel that still do not submit to King Jesus. A polite no thank you might be every bit as much an evidence of depravity as the first example that I gave to you. John 6, verse 44 says that because of our depraved human nature, no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. No one. Romans 3.11 says, there is none who seeks after God. Now, we might be puzzled and say, yeah, but how come some people, almost as soon as you start giving the evidence, they respond to the gospel? And there's other people who are hearing exactly the same evidence and they don't respond. Uh, why is it that this happens? And I think this passage gives us some hints, some clues that can help us to figure this out. Festus is the first example. He is very bold in his rejection of the gospel. Verse 24 says, Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Now when you understand court protocol in Rome, you realize this was extremely rude. He's interrupting a guy who's giving his defense and he's made up his mind about, uh, he's judged him, you know, before he's even completely given uh, his defense. He's obviously got his mind made up. He doesn't want to hear anymore. So he interrupts Paul's speech with his outburst. So first of all, it's a rude unbelief. Secondly, it's a very emotional unbelief. This yelling with a loud voice shows he's emotionally upset by what is going on. Okay, it's not just a calm evaluation of the evidence. If it had been that, he could have just simply said, hmm, I disagree. But no, he yells at Paul, and this yelling shows he's emotionally averse to the gospel. And thirdly, it's a mental unbelief. He thinks Paul is beside himself and is mad. He thinks what Paul is saying is ridiculous. He thinks the gospel is irrational. It does not make any sense to him. His whole heart is opposed to the gospel, and the, the heart is made up of three things. Made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions. So what we've seen here, all three are manifestations of this unbelief. Now take a look at Paul's response in verse 25. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. And we'll be looking at that verse a little bit more when we see why it was that Paul was fully persuaded uh, of the gospel. But right now, what I want to do is I just want to look at the implication of Paul's contradiction to Festus. If Festus thinks that what Paul is saying is insane, it's mad, it's ridiculous, it's irrational, but if Paul insists that everything he is saying is perfectly rational, perfectly truthful, and perfectly reasonable, what does it imply about Festus? It implies the opposite, right? It implies that Festus is out of touch with reality. And is that exactly not what goes on? If every blade of grass and every star and every hummingbird is amazing evidence of the wisdom of our Creator, to say to happen by chance, that's irrational. That's absolutely irrational. When natural laws such as gravity and inverse uh, squares and cause and effect and the laws of thermodynamics show that this world has been created by a God of law and order... To ascribe law and order to just random chance is absurd. You know, if the irreducible complexity of the human eye or the ear, if you've never seen the videos in our library, you've got to see them. They're just amazing. You're, you're jaw-dropping. 
or even take a so-called simple cell and you look at all of the complex things that had to be in place all at the same time, you see this is irreducible complexity that shows there is a designer, a very intelligent designer, then to ascribe all of this as having, you know, gradually developed over millions of years through random chance is irrational in the highest. In fact, one person said, you know, it's got about the same probability of a Boeing 747 uh, coming all together as a result of a tornado going through a junkyard as it does for millions of complex creatures to have evolved by chance. It is irrational. This is why Psalm 14 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You see, according to the Bible, foolishness does not mean lack of intelligence. There are some rather intelligent fools. According to the Scripture, there are some geniuses. You know, people who are far more intelligent than you are, and yet the Scripture would say that they are foolish. So foolishness has nothing to do with lack of intelligence. Foolishness is thinking that our puny minds, however brilliant they may be on a horizontal level, thinking that our puny minds can interpret this universe without any recourse to the revelation of the God who made all things and knows all things and interprets all things. That is foolish. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, let me give you six reasons why that statement is absolutely true. That the, uh, Anybody who says there is no God is a fool. First, the guy who was saying this has only experienced a tiny blip of time and has experienced an infinitesimal, a small amount of the vastness of this universe and he has the audacity to say that he knows dogmatically that God is nowhere in this universe. It's a pretty big pretension for a tiny speck on this tiny planet to make. And secondly, he would actually have to be omniscient to know all things in order to make that uh, statement because he is not, he'd have to be omnipresent too, he's not traveled throughout this universe and every part that God could possibly occupy and say, okay, I've examined everywhere. God is not there. He's not been able to uh, do that. And uh, he hasn't even been able to travel beyond our solar system, which is a tiny speck in our galaxy, which itself is a tiny speck in our universe. Uh, he knows next to nothing of all of the data that holds this universe together, and yet he makes a dogmatic assertion that something cannot exist. It is foolishness. Third, you cannot prove a universal negative. It's philosophically impossible. You have to be omniscient to prove a universal negative, which means you're God. Of course, you'd be lying if you said that there was no God and you were God, wouldn't you? Uh, so you'd have to be omniscient to even make that statement. Fourth, God does exist, which means this guy's in trouble. It's pretty foolish for, for a person who is hanging by a thread over hell to say, eh, I don't believe God exists. Uh, he's in deep trouble if he does not repent. Fifth, every atom of this universe is a testimony to God's existence. The world is literally screaming God's existence. Intelligent design is everywhere. Romans 1 says that the atheist knows deep down that God exists, but he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Was well, that not a definition of foolishness? To suppress the truth? It is. It really is. Six, God has revealed His manual for interpreting reality in the Bible. 
And so to ignore the manufacturer's manual is foolishness. So if there's overwhelming evidence for God's existence, which Paul in a moment is going to be saying that there is, then uh, why would it be, because God says they know God exists, why would it be that they say God does not exist? It's not because of the evidence. Psalm 14 goes on to say it's because they know they're sinners and they're trying to escape from accountability to a God. In fact, there's been a number of people, atheists, who have said exactly that. In Psalm 14, it says they don't want there to be a God because they're defending their sin. And you can see this kind of ethical rebellion in so many people. Let me give you a couple examples. British anthropologist Sir Arthur Keith said, Evolution is unproved and unprovable. We believe it only because the alternative is special creation. And that's unthinkable. Okay? He does not want there to be a creator. DMS Watson made a similar statement. He said the theory of evolution is a theory universally accepted, not because it can be proved by logically coherent evidence to be true, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible. See, Psalm 14 says that the unbeliever is very uncomfortable with the thought that there could be a God who judges him. He's got a sin nature. He wants to justify and protect that sin. Let me read the first four verses. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? Well, Festus is an example of an intelligent fool. He wants to reason independently of God and he's hostile uh, because... Everything about Christianity makes him feel uncomfortable. It's an alien worldview. It's an alien ethics. It's an alien Lord who, if he's true, he's going to be turning Festus's life upside down. He doesn't want to think about that. Okay, the second guy is a guy who's quite different from Festus. He's polite. He's pretty comfortable, actually, with a lot of what Paul's talking about because, remember, he was a converted Jew um, and um, yet he still does not want to submit to the gospel. Now, in verse 26... Paul shows that it was a whole lot easier to talk with Agrippa. He felt fairly comfortable talking with him. For the king before whom I also speak freely, spoke freely. This hints at the fact that Agrippa was politely listening. He was willing to hear Paul out. And though he does not ultimately believe, he's been quite open-minded all along in this chapter. The next phrase shows that Agrippa's unbelief had a correct understanding about the gospel. Take a look at that. It's very interesting. Verse 26, for the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. What things? The things he's just been talking about. He knows about the gospel. He knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. He cannot excuse his unbelief with ignorance. Oh, I didn't know. He can't, he can't do that. He knows all about Jesus' life and he knows at least about the basics of the gospel through his understanding of the Old Testament. Because remember, he was a student of that. We saw earlier. And through the presence of Christianity within his realm over the last 30 years, actually counting the ministry of Christ 33 and a half years. 
Now, he's only been reigning for 12 years, but he grew up in that region and he knew about the life, death, and, and, and uh, the, the claims to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we, of course, know happened and he's wondered about. Has it happened? Has it not happened? So he knows about these things. But my point is that his unbelief is despite the fact that Paul says in this verse that Agrippa knows these things. He knows it to be true, but he does not submit to it. Verse 27 indicates that this unbelief is even able to affirm the truth of the Bible and yet still reject its demands and still fail to understand it spiritually. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Those are amazing words for an unbeliever. <laughs> I know you do believe. He believed the Old Testament. Paul did too, remember, before he got converted? Did you know that Satan believes the Bible? He's read it. He can quote it. He knows the Bible. He believes the Bible. He knows that there's going to be a judgment day. In fact, it says in James, you know, that these demons, they believe and they tremble, but they're not saved. Okay? And so, believing the Bible is not enough. And this man seems to be even closer to being saved than that. Look at verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. You've heard the expression, so close, but no cigar. That's Agrippa, okay? He's so close to the kingdom, but he is not in it. Now, I do admit that there's a great debate about how to translate this verse, and part of the problem can be resolved if you hold to the majority text, because in the next verse, verse uh, 29, 99.5% of the Greek manuscripts that are out there uh, support um, the, 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 the reading here, and What's going on is the same word occurs in both verse 29 and verse 28, but there's another word in verse 29, depending on which way you go with that, that helps to interpret this word. So here's the thing. If you follow the majority text as I do, then the sarcasm or the rebuke that you find in the NIV is uh, extremely unlikely. Here's how the NIV translates it. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? So it's a rebuke. Uh, but if we follow the majority text in verse 29, as I do, then that narrows down the possibilities, and it's a difficult phrase to, to translate, but it narrows it down to one of the positive compliments that uh, uh, Agrippa gave that you'll see in your footnote there. It doesn't matter how you translate it. You can translate it, you almost persuade me, or in a short time you will persuade me, or a little more and your arguments would make a Christian of me. It doesn't matter. The end result is about the same. Uh, Agrippa, who knows the Scripture, is almost convinced that what Paul is saying is true. So here's the question. What keeps him from going over the edge and believing altogether? What is it that's uh, keeping him... Uh, on the other side of belief. He sees the, something there that perhaps his heart longs for. He wishes he had the boldness. He wishes he had the kinds of things that Paul did. But he says, you know, as much as I'd like to believe that, I just can't go there. Look at verse 30. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with him. So he abruptly ends the proceedings, and it appears that things are getting too hot. Now let me just explain that Paul really has put him into a dilemma. When he, oh, he's very bold. You know, he's supposed to be giving his defense. And what does he do? He says, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And by asking that question, he puts him into a tough position because if he says, 
Nah, I don't believe the prophets. He's going to get in trouble with the Jews. They'll be outraged. He's the king of the Jews, right? If he says, yeah, I believe the prophets, he's already seen enough evidence that Jesus has fulfilled these, that then the question is, how come you're not a Christian? Uh, so he's in a dilemma, and rather than resolving that, uh, he just says, you know, a little compliment to Paul here. He's, he, he can almost see what you're saying, but he says, let, let, let's talk about this later. Uh, we're just going to end this conversation right now because things have gotten a little bit too hot. But I find it surprising that he's still very nice about it. In verses 31 through 32, Luke makes it clear that Agrippa's unbelief did not make him antagonistic to Paul in the least. Instead, he affirms Paul's innocence, verse 31, and then in verse 32 he says, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So he didn't want to be opposed to Paul, but he didn't want to totally endorse what Paul... I mean, Paul might be right, but he didn't want to endorse him either. What's going on here? Depravity. Total depravity. That's what's going on here. Uh, Paul knows that apart from God's regeneration of the human heart, no one can repent and have saving faith. Take a look at verse 29. He says, I would to God. Now, literally, I pray to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Paul knows he cannot reason people into the kingdom. Now, God does use our reasoning in the Scriptures to prepare people for the gospel, and at some point, he busts the Scripture through into their heart, you know, and he regenerates them through that. But in ourselves, we cannot reason people into the kingdom. It is only God's sovereign grace that can turn a heart, change it around, and make it bow before his scepter. That's the only thing that can happen. And so, there are other translations that translate, I pray God or I pray to God, or it is my prayer to God. Those are three other uh, tr possible translations there. What he's saying is he's acknowledging God's the only answer to this, uh, this problem of unbelief. And the way God answers that is he gives a new nature which enables a person uh, to believe. <clears throat> and uh, the new heart that he gives is made up, we've already seen, of the mind, the will, and the emotions. Let's take a look at the intellect first of all. Uh, you haven't had a theological sermon for quite a while, so I'm giving you a systematic theology here. And um, we're dealing with the issue of depravity and regeneration. Romans 8, verse 7 says, The carnal mind is enmity against God. That means it's hostile to God. It goes on, For... It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. What he's saying here is that the unregenerate mind cannot be subject to God. It's impossible, and regeneration changes the heart so that the mind can be subject and can understand spiritually. Romans 3.11, there is none who understands. That's a universal statement. There is none who under It's not just the Festuses of this world who are non-understanding. The uh, nice, very polite, very kind Agrippas of this world do not understand either. They're blind spiritually. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. What Paul is saying is that man's mind must be renewed and turned around before he can understand the Scriptures. And there are thousands of testimonies of people who have become converted, and they said, at some point, it was almost like the lights went on. 
all of a sudden, they saw themselves in a totally new light. They saw God and they saw the world around them in a totally different light than they used to see it. In fact, Augustine said that it was, it was like there was a candle that was lit uh, in, in, um, in his mind. And he said, and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. Okay, that's one part of regeneration. Regeneration illumines the mind. It turns the lights on in the mind. Now, let's look at the emotions. I've heard people say, you know, it was love for God that drew me to salvation. I loved God before I was a Christian. And the Scripture would say, uh-uh, not true. Uh, apart from grace, you cannot love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, which means you've automatically broken the first and the greatest uh, commandment uh, that is out there. But let's take a look at some Scriptures on our affections. John 3.19 and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It should be no surprise whatsoever that pagans do not love God with all of their heart, soul, strength, and mind. What should be a surprise is that suddenly, at some point, they begin to love God with all of their heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the miracle, and the miracle is called regeneration. Uh, and many, many testimonies uh, about their conversions have said, wow, my emotions were turned upside down. I used to be apathetic about the gospel. Now, all of a sudden, I mourned over my sin. I hated my sin. I was hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I felt all of a sudden such a relief. I felt God's love being poured out into my heart. It was overwhelming to sense the love of God. Now, some people have not had huge emotional displays. It's been a much more calm peace that God has brought into their lives. But the point is... Regeneration realigns the emotions in a Godward direction. Okay, let me give you another verse. John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Prior to conversion, the natural man's desires are unrenewed, which means they can be totally manipulated and controlled by Satan. Ephesians 2, 3 says among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Paul puts himself in that category. He says, before I was converted, that's the way I was too. Now, I was a good Pharisee. Nobody ever thought that I was that way. But my emotions did not have Godward affections. And regeneration realigns our affections toward God. Now, what about the will? Surely that's got to be free. Surely if God commands us to come to Him, to, to, to repent and believe, that our will has got to be able to believe. If God commands it, we've got to be able to do it. Well, actually, it doesn't logically follow, but it's definitely, uh, definitely not a uh, biblical concept. Salvation is 100% of the Lord. John 6:44. No one can come to me. Now, to be able to come, that's an act of the will, right? So he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. Both the Festuses and the Agrippas of this world are utterly unable to come to God. John 5.40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. That's man's natural state. They're not willing. See, Festus was very rude in his unwillingness. And Agrippa was very polite in his unwillingness, but he was still unwilling. 1 Corinthians 2.14 
but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Now, we're going to look at the solution to this in a moment, but right now I think it's helpful to note that it's not because Festus was worse than Agrippa that he rejects the gospel. Both of them reject the gospel because they've got depraved hearts. Now, the earthly things that influence them in that direction, sure, those are quite different. Festus is a Roman. He's got all kinds of motivations that might be different than Agrippa as to why he cannot believe the gospel. He doesn't care about what the Jews think. Agrippa very much does. And I've listed in your outline some of the things that people have brought up. Is, is this a reason why Agrippa almost became a Christian but did not quite get there? And these may be true. Let's go through some of these. I'm not denying that there aren't human influences. Of course there are. In fact, this is the very... Uh, the, the, the very point, it's our depraved nature that keeps us from coming to Christ. And there's a multitude of creative ways that people uh, can respond negatively to the gospel. For example, Scripture indicates that pride frequently keeps people from believing. Proverbs 16:18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Psalm 10, verse 4, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. So pride can keep us from seeking God. Or like the rich young ruler, it can be riches. Uh, Agrippa's riches maybe kept him from believing. 1 Timothy 6, 9 says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. So your riches can be a God. And if your riches are God, God can't be God in your life. Okay? Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. So it could have been his riches. Was he chained by the pleasures of life? Possibly. Uh, Philippians 3.19 says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. I I always find that a, a humorous and a very remarkable phrase, whose God is their belly. Your belly can keep you from coming to Christ. There can be any number of things that can do that. Some people say that Agrippa went to hell because of procrastination and inability to make a decision. Uh, certainly the Athenians in chapter 17, verse 32, had that problem. Could it have been peer pressure? Yeah, it could have been. I mean, Festus has just said Paul is mad. He's crazy. He's insane. And Agrippa might have thought, he, here's my superior here. Do I really want him thinking I'm mad, that I'm insane? It could have been peer pressure. Listen to James verse, uh, 4, verse 4. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow. So that is definitely, can be a, 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 a dangerous thing. Uh, Galatians 1.10 says, If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Another possibility that people have offered up is that maybe he was worried about losing his position. We're not told. Was it the lust of the flesh? Maybe he was fearful that he was going to lose the pleasures of his incestuous relationship with his sister Bernice. Uh, that was a scandal at that time, possibly. Lust has kept many a man and a woman uh, from Christ. Maybe it was a failure to realize that as David worded it, there is but a step between me and death. In other words, we could die at any time. I could step off a curb and be hit by a car and I'd be in eternity. And Agrippa's maybe thinking, eh, you know, I've got lots of time. I can think about this. He didn't realize he was going to be buried in ash in Mount Vesuvius uh, in, in some years, but maybe he was procrastinating, putting things off. Many people do. And so when we say that man cannot turn to God apart from regeneration, we're not saying, hey, it's God's fault. 
Men don't want to turn. Their will is bound by their nature. In fact, God offers salvation to all. He is so generous. He says, whosoever will may come. But He didn't just leave it there. That'd be sad if God offered it and He just left it there. God goes one step beyond that and He graciously draws some men, women, and children to a saving knowledge of Him by changing their minds so that suddenly they're seeing straight, changing their emotions so that, as the Beatitudes say, they mourn over sin, they hate their sin, they hunger and thirst after righteousness. He changes their will so that finally they are willing to come. Now, if you look in your outlines, I've given you... This is the longest outline you've had in a while, isn't it? Um, I've given you three extra pages on there. And let me just walk you through what those are about. The first handout, this is after your outline. Uh, the first one deals with faith being a gift of God. So if you want some scriptures that prove it's a gift of God, there's a good one. First Peter 1 Peter 1.1 says, All Christians have obtained like precious faith. Ephesians 2.8 says faith is a gift of God. And you can look at those on your own sometime. But here, here's the point. If even our faith has to be given to us by God, we have nothing in which to boast. We can't love God unless God gives us the love to love Him with. We cannot believe in God unless God gives us the faith to believe in Him. This ought to make your heart well up in praise and adoration for the generosity of God. He gives to us and enables us to do what He commands us to do. Okay, the second uh, handout answers the objection. Well, if that's true, then you'd have a contradiction with the free offer of the gospel. Surely if God offers salvation to all, it means that all men can believe. Actually, if you know anything in logic, you know there's no logical contradiction here. You show me how there's any logical contradiction. It doesn't follow, but it's definitely not biblical. Uh, let me just read you the first two examples there. Okay, if you look at the, the top of the chart, it says, Life is offered to those who will come. That's John 6, verse 35. So it's freely offered. Anybody who wants to come to Christ may come to Him. And... Um, we have a generous God, free offer of the gospel, but just nine verses later, Jesus says, no one can come to me. So there's our utter inability to respond to the free offer of the gospel. What's the solution? The third column over says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so God's drawing power enables our feeble hearts to come on our own. As Augustine said, he enables what God commands. Next row of the chart. Life is offered to those who will believe. There's the free offer of the gospel again. Problem is, Jesus said, you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. Apparently, you have to be a sheep before you can believe. Okay, It's a sheep thing to believe. And that's why John 12 uh, says to those who were not sheep, they could not believe. Not just that they didn't want to. They could not believe. What's the solution? Third column over, Acts 18.27. Those who had believed through grace... It's God's grace that enables us to believe. Acts 3.16, the faith which comes through Him. In other words, through Jesus. And you can see a similar pattern. I won't go over all of those on all of the other free offers of the gospel. Life is offered to people if they will seek and look and hear, but they can't seek and look and hear. Why? Because they're dead. You know, they're blind. They're deaf. Until God restores their ability, they cannot come. Now, that, that's that chart. The last chart gives several scriptures that show that regeneration precedes 
faith and repentance. Okay? Regeneration gives us the ability to believe and repent. And I'm just going to read one example. Acts 16, verse 14. Whose heart the Lord opened, so that she heeded the things which were spoken by Paul. Or here's how the New American Standard words it. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So, God has to do open heart surgery in the spiritual realm to enable her to be able to respond to the gospel that Paul is preaching to her. So do not say, do not say like many Christians do, if you believe, you will be born again. No, 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 it's the exact opposite. It's only as you are born again that you will be able to believe. It's 100% of grace. It's 100% of the Lord. And that's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. One minute, we saw earlier in the chapter, one minute, he is racing headlong, hating Jesus, persecuting everybody who came uh, uh, across his path who was a Christian. And the next minute, he loves God. He's committed his life to God. Okay, so we've looked so far at Festus, who is utterly unpersuaded, Agrippa, who's almost persuaded. And uh, let's spend a few minutes looking at Paul's genuine faith that... It was totally persuaded. I'm going to throw in a little bit of philosophy and apologetics here. Not too much, you know, to bore you, but I want to throw in a little bit so you can see the significance of this passage. First of all, Paul had a belief that could be defended. Verse 24, now as he was thus making his defense. This is not a wild leap in the dark, as some people word it. This is not fideism. Okay, where you... You believe even though you have no evidence for believing. This is a faith founded on fact. This is a faith that can be defended. And anybody who thinks we ought not to defend the faith is not imitating Paul. Uh, the word that's used here for defend is apologia. That's the word that we get apologetics from. Now, there are some people think, oh, you ought not to be involved in apologetics. Just read the Scripture, that's it. And yet Paul defends the faith. He engages in apologetics. And we've got some fabulous courses on apologetics in our church library. Encourage you to look at that. We need to know how to defend the faith. Second, it was a belief that was perfectly rational. Verse 25. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Now, to be mad is to be irrational. It's to be out of touch with reality. But I want you to notice in this verse... Paul defends Christianity as being made up of words. Okay? Propositional statements. It's words. It's founded on truth. It uses reason. It's not simply feelings. It's like, oh yeah, I felt such peace when God came into my heart. It's dealing with theology. It's dealing with words, truth. It's reason. And I agree with Gordon Clark's that... Gordon Clark, that apologetics and our Christianity should never be able to affirm any logical contradictions. The Christian faith is not an irrational faith. In fact, you can teach an entire course of logic just using the Bible. In fact, I've got one. If any of you want to uh, teach logic through the Scripture, I've got one that's... Uh, um, uh, 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 I can't even think of the guy's name. But anyway, he teaches everything right from the Bible, uh, his whole course of logic. Now... I do like Van Til as well. You're going to see that. But I think Clark is a needed corrective on this issue. Christianity is rational. It is logical. It is propositional truths. We absolutely have to affirm that. And any church that makes you turn off your brain in order to believe what they say is not following the pattern that Paul set up. Cults like to do that. 
They want you to turn off your brain. Just trust us. You've got to be loyal. No. On the other hand, any church that wants you to reason, yeah, use your brain, but don't bring the Scriptures into it, that too is bad because that is humanistic rationalism. That's not uh, what we want to what we want to be in, involved in. And unfortunately, much modern Christianity embraces the world's thinking. And so verse 24, let's go through this a bit. Verse 24 defends the concept of apologetics. Verse 25 is consistent with Gordon Clark's insistence on rationality. Verse 26 is where Cornelius Van Til really shines. Okay, I think we can benefit from both of these guys. Some people, they camp only on Van Til or only on Clark. You can benefit from both. Third thing we see about Paul is that his system of thought is consistent with everything we see out there in the world. It's consistent with life. It's not just in here in our head. Utterly consistent with life. And the closer we get to the Scriptures, the less inconsistencies our Christianity is going to have with the things that are out there. Okay, let me just read that. Verse 26. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. He is appealing to all kinds of evidence that is out there that Agrippa could have known and should have known. This is what Romans 1 does. In fact, I think Romans 1 is a masterful expansion on this because it says unbelievers are without excuse. They know the evidence that is out there. And yet they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Just as one example, Romans 1.20 says that the whole creation speaks of God's existence so clearly that the unbeliever is left without excuse. As I said earlier in the sermon, it was Festus who was out of touch with reality. It's evolutionists who are out of touch with reality. We have nothing to fear by studying science and studying geology and, and all of these types of things because it will line up with what God says. It, why? God made it. God was there. He knows. And so we have nothing to fear. But then the next verse corrects those who see creation as being a second book of Revelation. Do you know people like that? And the slogan that they use is, all truth is God's truth. Okay, we got the book of the Bible, and then you got the, the book of science. And uh, so, since all truth is God's truth, this is equally as authoritative what the scientists tell us as what the Bible tells us. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, we have got to look at all of life through the lens of the Scripture. And so fourth, this is point D, Paul's faith was a faith founded on the word of a God who cannot lie. Verse 27 says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? That's a question we need to constantly be asking. Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe the Scriptures? And if not, why not? The God who made all things has revealed His will and has given in the Bible everything that pertains to life and godliness. Uh, and, and this is really at the heart of the difference between the scripturalism of Paul and the worldviews of Festus and Agrippa. And this is again where Gordon Clark brings some absolutely needed corrective uh, in apologetics. There are three enemies of Christianity that, that he outlines. Let me give them to you. There is uh, rationalism, empiricism, and irrationalism. Okay, the, the first enemy, rationalism, is what Gordon Clark speaks of as reason without faith. Reasoning without faith. It's starting with man's mind and trying to reason out there, whereas scripturalism starts with God's mind. Okay, rationalism is the antithesis of Christianity. 
We don't start with human mind. We start with God's revelation. This is where the Bible starts. In the beginning, God. And then God gives all this revelation. Okay, He's the one we've got to start with, not with our mind. The second enemy is empiricism, which seeks to derive truth from our experience, our experiments, and our looking out there at the world. Now, in this approach, science is treated as infallible instead of God being treated as infallible. Where rationalism treats our minds as infallible, this treats science as infallible. Science is thought to be the source of truth. But this is every bit as much a rejection of God as rationalism was. Paul called it science falsely so-called. That's how the King James translates it. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. Now, science makes a lousy God. It's constantly changing. If you study the history of science, you'll see from decade to decade, uh, there's constant changes in science. And because it's made such a lousy God, because it's proved to not be quite so as infallible as some people thought it was, there are people who have ditched rationalism and they've ditched empiricism and they said, we, we just need to embrace irrationalism. Those are the three unbelieving worldviews. Rationalism, empiricism, irrationalism. Now, let me give you some irrationalists. Liberals like Kierkegaard and uh, Schleiermacher, uh, neo-Orthodox people like Bart would hold to irrationalism. All of the emergent church out there, and believe me, even people who don't think they're emergent have been influenced by postmodernism. They have embraced the idea of irrationalism. Okay, what does irrationalism do? Uh, irrationalism uh, really uh, have no problem with logical contradictions. Uh, they have no plot problem with pluralism. They have no problem with saying, oh yeah, that could be true for you, and this is true for me, and we could all get along together. They're, they're usually pretty nice people until you start saying Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. Then they get outraged. So they do have some uh, non-pluralism. Uh, they tolerate everything except for Christians, because <laughs> at least Christians who are dogmatic. But anyway, that's what that's about. And all three of these are incredible uh, dangers to the faith, and I can tell you quite assuredly that all three of these have crept into the church of Jesus Christ and have been destroying the faith that was once delivered to the saints. It was primarily the rationalists that were attacking the faith in the 1800s, and then it was the empiricists who were attacking the faith in the 1900s, and in the last decade of the 1900s and into the, uh, the 2000s, it's largely been the irrationalists who have dominated the field uh, today. Now, in contrast to those false worldviews, Paul's approach was scripturalism. Scripturalism. Unlike rationalism, empiricism, irrationalism, which all have to start with creation, which means by definition they're going to be um, reductionistic. Uh, by reductionistic, I mean they, can, they try to explain one area, but they can't possibly consistently explain both what's going on inside of me, what's going on out in the world, and how everything can be logically held together. So unlike those three that start with man or creation, because scripturalism starts with the God who made all things, knows all things, interprets all things, even though we're not omniscient, we can take account of all three areas of life and consistently do it. Rationalism uh, is a part of the image of God. And let me just give you some examples uh, of how, um, 
how we can do a better job than the other three. Scripturalism is more rational than rationalism because it starts with the mind of God who knows everything rather than with man's puny mind. Let me just give you some examples what difference this makes. And I'm just trying to give a bare introduction. Rationalism has never been able to justify the truthfulness of logic. Why? Because it starts with universal principles. You'd have to be omniscient to be able to justify it. We can justify it because every principle of logic has been revealed by the God who knows all things in the Scripture. Uh, rationalism, uh, at least after the 1950s, they've recognized they cannot justify mathematics. And uh, it's for the same reason. We can justify ration, uh, 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 mathematics because every axiom of mathematics has uh, been included by God in the Bible. And so, while we reject rationalism, we do not reject the rationality of God. See, rationality is a part of the image of God in man. Even pagans cannot escape it, and that's why it's so important to use apologetics. We know that it will make them without excuse if they are, 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 are at least silence them, you know, if they are uh, engaging in opposition to the gospel. Secondly, scripturalism does better science than the pagan empirical science does. Why? Again, it's because we start with the mind of the God who created everything. Okay? Because God made the world, we know that the world will line up with the way God interprets it. We've got a head start. And so we do experiments in science, absolutely, but we do not do those experiments by leaving God out of the equation, leaving the Bible out of the equation. We start with the Bible, which Jesus called the key of knowledge. Luke 11, verse 52. Why in the world would you throw away the key of knowledge? And yet that's what a lot of Christians say when you're dealing with you know, evolution and you're dealing with geology and things like this. You can't bring the Bible into that. No. Christ said it's the key of knowledge. And He rebuked people who tried to take that key away. Thirdly, we can do a better job at understanding the invisible things that are going on inside of men uh, because the Bible says no one can know the human heart. We don't even know our own hearts. But God knows the heart and He's revealed all kinds of things about our hearts. So even though we don't know everything that's going on in the heart, we can with absolute confidence follow what the Bible says are the answers to man's heart's problems. Why? He knows the answers. So we're not being tossed to and fro like's happening with the 600 plus different schools of psychology out there that are trying to analyze what's going on inside. By the way, anybody who says psychology says is a nut. Okay? Psychology. Which school of psychology? They're constantly contradicting each other. There is no such thing as psychology says. You have to say which school. There, there, there is such a wide variety out there and they're constantly changing. It is only the Bible that does not change. And so, uh, we must always ask ourselves Paul's question, do you believe the prophets? And that's what I say. As for me and my house, we do. We do. And it's because of the solid basis that scripturalism gives to the Christian, we can have the same certainty that Paul did. It's because we start with the word of a God who cannot lie, we can be totally unashamed. You look at verse 29, it is remarkable. He's utterly unashamed to speak his worldview into a public courtroom before kings and governors. Paul is so persuaded by the scriptures, he's unashamed to bring Jesus into every aspect of, of life. And we need to be there as well. We should not be 
uh, thinking more about what do people think as we do about what does God think. Here's what Jesus said. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And then the same verse, uh, verse 29 here, indicates that it was a belief that was not almost, but was altogether persuaded. Now this speaks of certainty. Okay, there's evidentialists out there, Christian evidentialists. They're constantly speaking of probabilities because they're starting from a wrong foundation. You never find Paul speaking of probabilities. He speaks of absolute certainty. Scripturalism is satisfied with nothing less than certainty. Now, those of you who have never studied philosophy and apologetics and epistemology and ontology and all of those $10 words, you might think, ooh, you know, this is, uh, uh, th- this is tough. You may not even be catching the significance of... Of things, but if you've studied this, you've probably had your mind traveling down all kinds of rabbit trails. Wow, that answers that, that answers that. All of the answers that academics are asking in Christian circles right now are being answered by this passage here. It's a beautiful little passage. And so, sometime in the future, when you start studying those disciplines, come back. I've just tried to give you a little basic introduction. But let me end where the rubber meets the road. I want to challenge you to stop being Festus's and Agrippa's, and start being confident Paul's, absolutely persuaded Paul's. For example, if there's any portion of Scripture that you think, ooh, that sounds crazy. I don't think I want to believe that. You're acting like a Festus, and I call you to repent of that. It doesn't matter how small that Scripture may be. Old Testament, New Testament. If you think that is silly, that is absurd, You need to repent because you are standing on dangerous ground. What, in effect, you are saying is the God who gave the Old Testament or the God who gave that weird New Testament command is crazy, is silly, is irrational. That's very dangerous ground to stand on. And yet there are many people out there who um, in America who think that the Old Testament laws are absurd. I've heard one, I won't even say who it is, um, God forgive him, who said on public radio, no one would want to live in a society that had Old Testament laws in it. And I just shudder to think of this because that's such an insult to the God who gave that. There are people who think that that the Bible's economic laws are naive. They think that the Bible's uh, political laws, oh, they're too libertarian. Or they think that um, Genesis 1 and 2 is nonsense. Oh, yeah, science was, you know, disproved uh, that. Or they try to reinterpret it. You can tell that they are embarrassed by it. But that is to call the God of this universe crazy, irrational, absurd. You know, sort of like what Paul said in Romans 9. There was somebody who was arguing against his doctrine of predestination, that this service has kind of been wrapped around. And... um, and in effect was saying, that, that's crazy. That didn't make any sense to me, that God would predestine one to life and the other to judgment. And here's Paul's response to them. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Now, you know the portion of Scripture, in your heart of hearts, you know the portion of Scripture that you've struggled with and you said, I really don't want to believe that. And I will say to you, stop being like Festus. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ 
for responding like Festus. You need to cast that off. It is a demonic temptation and you need to say, Lord, I cherish your law. With David, you need to say, Lord, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all of the day. Now, because you guys are attending church rather regularly, it's very unlikely you're a Festus. There might be some here. You're more likely to be an Agrippa. And Agrippa is somebody who comes up to Pastor Kaiser afterwards. It's a lovely sermon, Pastor Kaiser. I just really enjoyed that. And you go on about your life without ever having any changes in your life. You can do that month after month, year after year. What you are doing is you're acting just like Agrippa. Is that not true? Because God's Word intends for us to change when it confronts us in our sin. And so I rebuke you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And I say, repent when you act like Agrippa and say, Lord, I want the fear of you. I want to fear and tremble at your word. I want to live like Hebrews 12 says that I should live. I want to delight in your mandates. I don't want to just have a passive resistance. Passive resistance will get you to the judgment seat of Christ every bit as much as the active resistance of Festus will. This passage is a call to put off all skepticism, whether it is the skepticism of Festus or Agrippa, and to be fully persuaded of the Scriptures as Paul was. It is a call to thoroughgoing scripturalism. It is a call to never mix pagan secular notions with Christian notions. It is a call to bring every thought and action and word and deed into captivity to King Jesus, to whom be the glory forever. Amen.